this holiday season, Universal Pictures brings you a very special motion picture experience. The first animated feature film presented by Steven Spielberg. An American Tale. The story of one family's journey to America and Fievel, their son, who got lost along the way. A Don Bluth film. There is something to be said that a movie made in the 80s about the racist separation of a family of mice being more poignant now than ever before. Yeah. <laughs> this is the story of an American tale. This is Toys for Us. Uh, what's your name, little buddy? Banjo. Ooh, a sparkly. Dragon's Lair. A fantasy adventure where you become a valiant knight on a quest to rescue the fair princess from the clutches of an evil dragon. Dogs go to heaven because unlike people, dogs are naturally good and loyal and kind. Huh, yeah, that's true. Cockadoo, what a day. The sun is shining brightly. Cockadoo, sunny day. Down here on the farm. Tumbleina. She's a funny little squirt. Tumbleina. Tiny angel in a skirt. Tumbleina. First she's mending, then baking, pretending she's making things A troll in Central Park. The Pebble and the Penguin. Dancing bears, painted wings, things I almost remember. And a song someone sings once upon a December. Titan A.E. Get ready for the human race. Hello, welcome back to the Toys R Us podcast, your journey back into time and space to uncover the history of a thing that you loved as a child and still love as an adult. My name is Richard Hunt, and with me as always is my cousin and co-host, Brian Muth. Hey everybody. Brian. Yes sir. Today we will be covering one of my favorite movies growing up, and it's a movie that still makes my weepy ass cry. Yeah. Even as a grown ass man. Yeah. That's understandable. It's an American tale. That being said, are you ready to dive in? You bet. We are sure to do impossible things if you follow your heart. We start our story in 1984, where we meet up with the legendary Steven Spielberg. Senior Spielbergo. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Senior Spielberg, not here. You're like, yeah, what? No, no. No. You're by yourself. Not here. Old Stevie Boy was just blown away by the secret of Nim, 
and he really wanted an opportunity to work with the minds behind it, especially Don Bluth. Can you imagine impressing Steven fucking Spielberg? In the 80s. Like, no doubt. You know, like, of, of his all fucking the, game. Yeah. For him to be like, whoa, hold this up. dude. Hold up. Wait yeah. a fucking minute. Yeah, that's gotta be something else. Uh, Spielberg had, had asked Bluth to make me something pretty like you did in Nim. Make it beautiful. And it's like, done. He's not Bluth's like, okay, crack the knuckles. Yeah. He's like, I'm, uh, I'm, I've not hit my decline yet. Let, <laughs> I, me, fucking let me get this. Let me cash in on it while I still can. In a 1985 interview, he described his role in the production as first in the area of story, inventing incidents for the script, and now consists of looking every three weeks to a month at the storyboards that Blue sends me and making my comments. So, like, Steven Spielberg is just like, all right, Boo. He's like, I'll let you do you. Do it. Blue later commented that Steven has not dominated the creative growth of Tale at all. There is an equal share of both of us in the picture. Nevertheless, this was his first animated feature, and it took some time for him to learn that adding a two-minute scene would take dozens of people months of work. yeah. Yeah, it's a... Animation's a... Steep curving grade there. You're like, uh, Okay. Because you think, like, with a movie, you can be like, all right, action. All right, ten minutes later. Yeah. It's It's like a second, like, four frames. Yeah. Well, with animation, you're like, I've been here 37 hours. Here's the four seconds of footage I have. Which is just like... They... I don't know if you heard, but they fired the entire VFX team that recreated Sonic. Are you kidding? Yeah. No no warning, nothing. Just uh, fired them all. That is fucked up. And they were having, like, 36-hour, like, overtime. Like, uh, overtime of that, with their full 40-hour week. And yeah. then somehow 36 hours extra. Oh, good God. Like, mandatory overtime. And then yeah. if you didn't have a... I was reading the article. If you didn't have a good excuse as to why you couldn't work the mandatory overtime... Yeah. Uh, you'd be fired. Jesus. Just, and then they just fired everybody anyway. Go fucking figure. It's... Jesus. It speaks to how little people think of... Anybody like, anymore? Creativity. <laughs> you know, like... Yeah. It takes a lot to fucking make absolutely. something. Yes, and absolutely. To, and just to have your work shit on. Yeah. By being fired. And then, yeah, just to get <laughs> shit canned. Three weeks before Christmas. Yeah. Merry fucking Christmas. Ay, ay, ay. Here's your pink slips. Fucked up. In 1985, he stated, At this point, I'm enlightened, but I still can't believe it's so complicated. It was Universal Pictures' first animated feature film since Pinocchio in Outer Space in 1965. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, okay. 20 years later. It's just fucking Jason 10 when he's in space yeah. and the fucking Pinocchio's out there. She's using Pinocchio as a weapon. <laughs> it's okay. He just wanted his machete back. <laughs> Which, man, underrated. I you know, it, it's campy as fuck. It's, it's exactly what a Friday the 13th movie should be. Yes, in space. The fucking <laughs> the camping scene. Yeah. <laughs> top notch. K- killing campers on the holodeck. Fucking top notch. Originally, the concept consisted of an all-animal world, like Disney's Robin Hood. But Blue suggested featuring an animal world existing as a hidden society from the human world, like Disney's The Rescuers. After viewing The Rescuers, Spielberg agreed. Emmy Award-winning writers Judy Judy Freudberg and Tony Geis were brought in to expand the script. 
When the, when the initial script was complete, it was extremely long and was heavily edited before the final release. Booth felt uncomfortable with the main character's name, thinking Fievel was too foreign sounding, and he felt audiences wouldn't remember it. Hmm. Well, I mean, I get that, but no, it's kind of... It's also at the same time as, like, fucking Skeletor and She-Ra. Right, I mean... Come on, man. Yeah, These people are remembering every single fucking Transformers name, but they can't remember Fievel. Seriously, the Thundercats came from a planet called Thundera. (laughs) I mean, I think Fievel's... Yeah. It's okay. It's in their wheelhouse. They got this. Uh, Steven Spielberg Steven Spielberg disagreed with Bluth, um, and the character was named after his maternal grandfather, Philip Posner, whose Yiddish name was Fievel. Oh. Uh, the scene in which he presses up against a window to look into a classroom filled with American school mice is based on a story Spielberg remembered, remembered about his grandfather, who told him that Jews were only able to listen to lessons through an open window while sitting outside in the snow. God, that's fucked up. It really is fucked up. We're just horrible creatures, aren't we? And you think about it, it's like, it's not even that long ago in history. No, it's not. You know? Like, like, this is, we're talking within a hundred yeah. some odd years. In the grand scheme of things, it's like Dropping the two weeks ago. Yeah. You know, you're like, oh. <laughs> Remember that? Uh, Spielberg eventually won out, though something of a compromise was reached by having Tony refer to Fievel as Philly. Spielberg also had some material cut that he felt was too intense for children, including a scene Bluth was developing revolving around wave monsters while the family was at sea. Oh, damn. Now Bluth is like, this uh, hardcore allegory for fucking Nazi times isn't <laughs> fucked up enough. Let me throw a sea monster yeah, in let, there. Let's, let's, let's keep the good times rolling. Spielberg's original vision for the film was as a musical, it is said that he wanted a hi-ho of his own, referring to the popular song mm-hmm. from Snow White. Jerry Goldsmith, who had worked on The Secret of Nim with Bluth, was initially supposed to work on the score, but had to drop out of the film due to a busy schedule. After he completed Aliens, James Horner composed the score for the film, which was recorded in England and performed by the London Symphony Orchestra and the Choir of the King's College. Man, R.I.P. James Horner. I know, man. Tension. Tension like a motherfucker. You're just like, ooh, no. Yeah, for real. <laughs> Don't like this. Mm-mm. So, Corny Weaver, you better watch! Yep. Two excerpts of period music also appear in the film. The Stars and Stripes Forever by John Philip Sousa, and mm-hmm. Poor Wandering One from the 1880 comic opera The Pirate, Pirates of Penzance by Gilbert and Sullivan. There is also a musical reference to the 1947 song Galloway Bay, popularized by Bing Crosby. Initially, Bluth and his team were disappointed with the first score recording, but once edited, they found the music worked quite well. The final score became one of the film's strongest points. I'll agree with that. I mean, if you've got fucking James Ingram <laughs> covering one of the songs with the soundtrack, you're like, okay. It's like, well, alright. And that, talk about fucking that motherfucker. I don't know why, like, it wasn't even just limited to, like, Disney. Right. Every, like, 80s and 90s cartoon, like, animated feature... Had to have a banger on it. Had to have a banger that was sung in the movie by the characters, Mm -hmm. but had to have been sung by somebody else, like, for the soundtrack. Yeah. You're like, oh, okay. Wow. Son of a bitch. 
Like fucking Beauty and the fucking Beast. Yeah. Peebo Price. <laughs> like, oh, it's fucking like Peebo, huh? Okay, somebody's getting pregnant tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, after the first rounds of songs were written, it was decided that a special song would be written for Linda Ronstadt to sing over the end credits with James Ingram called Somewhere Out There. Boom. It was composed by Horner and Barry Mann with lyrics by Cynthia Weil. And it won a Grammy Award and became one of the most popular songs from an animated feature since the 1950s. Fucking okay. <laughs> During production, Amblin and Universal expected to view the dailies and approve all major work on the film, and various outside parties also requested changes here and there. This caused the production to buckle from excessive oversight. It's like too many fucking cooks in the yep. kitchen, you know? Yep. Uh... And it made Bluth feel like he was losing freedom of control over the produ- production process. As the release deadline approached, pressure grew throughout the crew and numerous problems arose, ranging from slower-than-expected cell painting in Ireland to low-footage output by some animators. Also, the songwriters had written the score much later than originally desired. Suddenly, scenes had to be dropped to save time and money, and new, shorter scenes had to be created to help pick up the story and points lost in the process, mm. sometimes making the storyline look jumbled. That's that's one thing I think that I have in common with Don Bluth. What's that? Is I bite off way more than I can fucking chew. Yeah, it's true. Way more. Because, like, you do. your brain is like, I want to do that. Oh, yeah. I want to do that. Hey, can I do that? Hey, let me do that. Mm-hmm. Can I have it? <laughs> <laughs> can I have it, though? But, I mean, like, it, it. I think it broke him down, and that's why he kind of fell from grace, Don Bluth. I get that. like... He went so hard, so fast. Yeah. That he hit his creative peak. Yeah. And just kind of burned himself yeah, out. Yeah, he, he really did. Because, like, as you'll see as these days progress, these episodes are going to get Dark. shorter and shorter <laughs> because there's just no creative process to it. Yeah, it's, it's just, just like, let me shit out this idea. I don't want to say cookie cutter, but... That might be no, yeah. What his his biggest thing is that he he left Disney to make Disney work harder, yeah. Only to fall back on Disney's laurels and just hit the same bits point by point that Disney does, yeah. And you're like, man, you hate to fucking see it because like he was ahead of his time when he fucking when he left Disney, he was full of that piss and vinegar, yeah. You're like. God damn, this dude's gonna fucking do something. You either die the hero or you live <laughs> long enough to become the villain. Yes. Fucking exactly. Unfortunate. Unfortunate. Indeed. Um, notable cuts include the Mouskowitz's journey across Europe, a scene in when they a scene in which they first meet Tiger and he gets stuck up in a tree. An upbeat song that Five was planned to sing while in prison in the sweatshop, and a scene that gave greater explanation of the changing of the names at Ellis Island. Cuts are also responsible for a baby Yasha's apparent disappearance after the boat trip. Oh, jeez. You know, just fucking get rid of a character completely. Yeah, just... Where'd that baby go, huh? What baby? It's like the the freaking other daughter on Family Matters. Yes. He just fucking disappears. (laughs) Or like the other brother on fucking Happy Days. Just... Yep, there he goes. The film was also played by Union Difficulties. Booth had agreed to accept $6.5 million to get it pro- uh, produced, which later grew to $9 million, at a time when Disney was spending around $12 million per film. He knew it would be difficult, but felt it was worth the sacrifice to work with Spielberg on a major project. Senor Spielberg. 
They put the yeah. <laughs> cast nets in there. <laughs> like, oh. like, oh, it means business. With the agreement of his employees, salaries were frozen for a year and a half. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Unlike the former Blue Studios, the new Sullivan Blue Studios were non-union, and when many workers attempted to withdraw from the union, it sparked a battle between Bluth and the union that continued through most of the production. Mm. It was mostly this struggle that later compelled Bluth to re- uh, relocate to Ireland, which he felt offered a more supportive atmosphere. <laughs> I get that. But it's also like, let me go fuck these Irish people over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Americans are too headstrong right now. Fuck this shit. Yeah. Union- uh-uh, no, 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 no. Hey. You over there. Come work for 47 hours straight. (laughs) Straight? Yeah. You heard. Okay. (laughs) So now we enter Fievel and his American tale. In 1885, in the village of Shotska, Russia, stands the house of Moskowitz family. At its base lives the Moskowitz family, composed of Mama and Papa, Fievel, Tanya, and an unnamed baby. You know, just fucking... Yeah. It's yeeted. Unnamed baby. Unnamed baby. In their cozy abode. It, it, they never hide the fact that the Moskowitzes, Moskowitz, Moskowitzes are Jewish. No. They didn't shy away from that Like, Papa says Happy Hanukkah and, like, they sing, like, Yiddish songs. Like, this is right. not... Nobody's trying to, like, shove that under the rug. Right. But it also, like... You never hear this brought up. Which is very matter-of-factly right. stated. It's like, when you when you see a list of, like, best Jewish movies, like, like you never right. see a fucking American tale. Yeah. Even though it's like, they're very blunt about the fact that very they're Jewish. Yeah. It, 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 like, meant nothing to nobody. Yeah. Especially fucking Siskel and Ebert. Because, like, they fucking dogged on this film. Did they really? No. Honestly, the the one thing linking all these Don Bluth movies together is that, like, no critics like these fucking movies. Really? None of them. Huh. Uh, And American Tale is two out of five stars. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, Shotska is an actual village that was established by the Ukrainian Cossacks who were based there and in the late 19th century existed in an area known as the Pale of Settlement. Which... Sounds that's, terrible. That's baller as fuck, dude. <laughs> the Pale of Settlement. It's like, okay, don't want to live there. Scratch that from the list. No. This area allowed permanent residency by Jews. The region outside of the Pale's borders generally prohibited, prohibited it, except in special cases. But the Jewish families who lived there experienced poverty and conscription in, uh, into the Tsar's army. Yeah. The Pale was also the site of the anti-Semitic pogroms or violent riots directed at certain demographics in the yeah. late 19th and early 20th centuries. Yeah, that was a bad time. Not a good time at all. No. Which is just a lot of fucking... A lot of information to be thrown at the fucking screen. Right, seriously. And just the opening of this fucking kids movie. <laughs> <laughs> you like see the trailer for it, you're like, oh, like somewhere out screen. there, that's, that's wholesome. Oh, systematic eradication of the and Jews like, from the from oh, Russia. Okay. Literally that gif of the guy that's like, Huh? Um, but then, you know, you don't have to make a leap to know what happens next. Yeah. Where a band of torch-bearing Cossack soldiers on horseback ride through the village, setting it ablaze. 
a group of mustache cats follow in their wake and terrorize the mall's population. As cats are wont to do. You know. This violence results in the destruction of the Moskowitz's home and forces them to make the 2,000-kilometer trek to Hamburg with the hope of escaping persecution. Sure. All of this dark material is preceded by a warm, wonderful moment showing the Moskowitz family celebrating Hanukkah. Papa stresses the importance of their family and their people's history and culture with both a retelling of the tale of the giant mouse of Minsk and a physical hand-me-down in the form of Fievel's all-important floppy hat. Hmm. Which, iconic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, these lessons and the promise of greater opportunities awaiting in America acts as bookends before and after the attack. They give the Moskowitzes hope to preserve their culture while also continuing it by embarking on a grand, promising adventure to the New World. Ah, oh, the New World. The New World. Which... Meet the new world. <laughs> Same as the old world. I'm fucking fortunately. Yeah. The more things change, the more they stay the same. That's right. In Hamburg, the Moskowitz family members were just a scant few of a long line of immigrants from Europe um, who were boarding a steamer bound for America. The, gavel, the, the gathered travelers, Russian Jews... Irish and Italian immigrants alike huddled together in any space they could find in the hold of the ship. The Moskowitzes played songs from their home country before uniting together with the other passengers to sing There Are No Cats in America. Oh, yeah. In which the all-too-familiar tales of atrocities set upon them by cats were told, mm. only to end with the hopeful message of a promising cat-free America. To put it briefly, they were not alone in their tragedies, nor their hopes for a better tomorrow. From... 1880 to 19, the great wave of European immigrants flooding into America was estimated at 27 million. This was during the time of increasingly exclusionary and bureaucratic legislation uh, meant to restrict immigration from certain regions, mostly Asia and specifically China. That kind of sounds familiar. Yeah. Where does that sound familiar? Hmm. Can't fucking imagine. Huh. Uh, and generate not er, and generate revenue from each non-American citizen seeking to move into the country. A modern crisis of immigration and refugee flight is currently happening in Europe, though the U.S. tends to be less warm and receptive than that of our friends and allies across the Atlantic. Mm. Thousands have already died in transit while trying to cross the Mediterranean, a modern-day tragedy morbidly mirrored in an American tale where a deadly storm thrashes through the steamer ship and separates Feifel from his family. Papa and Mama are forced to give him up for dead, but of course that's where his little fucking adventure begins. You bet. An American tale actually takes the time to show Moskowitz is going through legal immigration procedures, presumably at M Ellis Island, which was the nation's busiest gateway for immigrants during the first half of the 20th century. Tanya's name was changed against her wishes, perpetrating a myth that this was commonplace, but also setting up a plot point for later in the film. Regardless, this was a relatively insignificant slight for the family after the loss of their only son. Because it's like... Yeah, my kid's probably dead. I don't give a fuck about my name anymore. Yeah, just kind of pile it on right now. But. Yeah. Except Feifel is alive, but not exactly well. Right. He washes ashore in New York City's harbor, floating in a bottle past the Statue of Liberty that's still under construction. It's here that Feifel makes acquaintances with the first of many fellow immigrants, a French pigeon named Henry, voiced by Christopher Plummer, 
who was working diligently on finishing the statue that would welcome immigrants the world over with its inscribed message of hope. This is but the first positive reinforcement of the message of America's open arms to the people of the world. Um, but but Fievel's travels through the hard luck streets of New York were not what he had been promised. In the marketplace in the slums... Yes, everywhere. 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 <laughs> Huxers tried to sell the Brooklyn Bridge or a ticket to Chicago used only once, along with other scams. <laughs> it's here that Fievel meets the slick and charismatic Warranty Rat. Unbeknownst to Fievel, this is actually a cat in disguise who's been charging the mice a protection fee but providing no actual protection from the cat gang. Fucking The, <laughs> the Mott Street Maulers. He quickly befriends Fievel before selling him to a sweatshop. The ties between immigration and sweatshops and the multi-billion dollar garment industry still exist today, even after the tragic events of the 1911 Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. <clears throat> the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire in the... What is this? Greenwich, right? Yeah. Why the fuck... Why would I put a fucking W in there? Mm, I don't know. Words are weird. Words are weird. In the Greenwich Village neighborhood of Manhattan, New York City, on March 25th, 1911, was the deadliest industrial disaster in the history of the city, and one of the deadliest in the United States history. The fire caused the deaths of 146 garment workers, 123 women and girls, and 23 men, who died from the fire, smoke inhalation, or falling or jumping to their deaths. Most of the victims were recent Italian and Jewish immigrant women aged 14 to 23. Jesus. Of the victims whose ages are known, the oldest victim was 43-year-old Providenza Pano, and the youngest were 14-year-olds Kate Leone and Rosara Sarah Maltese. The factory was located on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of the Ash Building at 23 through 29 Washington Place near Washington Square Park. The 1901 building still stands today and is known as the Brown Building. It is part of and owned by New York University. Imagine. Yeah. You know that place is fucking haunted. Oh, yeah. Because the doors to the stairwells and exits were locked, a then-common practice to prevent workers from taking unauthorized breaks and to reduce theft, many of the workers who could not escape from the burning building jumped from the high windows. Mm. The fire led to legislation requiring improved fact improved factory safety standards and helped spur the growth of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union which fought for better working conditions for uh, sweatshop workers fucking A the building has been designated a a national historic landmark and a New York City landmark just like yeah not for the best of reasons though no no definitely not something you want Still a kid's movie, an American tale doesn't linger here, but rather uses this scene to plant a flag along the path of immigration and assimilation in America. It is also where Fievel meets the very helpful Tony Tapony. Hey, it's Tony. Tony Tapony. Tony Tapony. Hey, Tony Tapony! What follows is a whirlwind of other immigrants who cross Fievel's path. Some, like Tony, are street smart but struggling to get along. While others, like the principled Irish mouse Bridget and the uber-wealthy Gussie Mouseheimer, are well-to-do and focused <laughs> on rallying their fellow mice to their cause. During one such rally, Fievel learns that the promise of a cat-free America was a false one. Cat- 
Cats savage the meeting in a public market and destroy everything they can get their claws on. It's after this event, and yet another failed attempt to locate Fievel's parents, no thanks to the drunk but well-meaning politician Honest John, <laughs> that the mice decide to do something about the cats once and for all. Very early in the film, Papa Mouskowitz tells Fievel and Tanya the legend of the giant mouse of Minsk. It's this cultural touchstone that ultimately saves the mice in New York City thanks to Fievel's recollection of the story. The legendary mouse, as tall as a tree with a mile-long tail, was seen in two iterations, the, cute shadow, the cutesy shadow puppet formed by Papa Mouskowitz and the terrifying, nightmare-inducing, monstrous metal creation made by the combined efforts of the immigrant mice. That is terrifying. If you're a cat, you're like, what the? <laughs> it's, it's like a megazord for mice. <laughs> yes. This climactic scene, clearly influenced by the Jewish legend of the Gollum, works on a number of levels. The mice are only able to defeat the cats through their combined efforts and unified purpose. The cats are summarily beaten by an outsized embodiment of the very victims they terrorized, and they're run out of their country on a steamer ship bound for China while the victorious immigrants state claims to their new home. It's fantastic, and the spirit of the whole thing is summed up by Gussie's rallying cry of E Pluribus Unum, which just so happens to be the, the motto of the United States, out of many, one. Boom. But while the problem of the Mott Street Maulers has been resolved, there's still the issue of the missing Fievel and its necessary reunion with his family. It's definitely worth noting that everything in Fievel's travel to this point, his trustworthy and naive nature, his friendship with... Uh, fellow immigrants and his ability to turn foe into friend over shared interest with the lovable tiger, Dom DeLuise, ah, yeah. ultimately led to him meeting up with his family once again in a heartwarming scene that makes all of their hardships worthwhile. The clincher is Fievel and friends flight past the newly completed Statue of Liberty, which literally winks at them. Yeah! <laughs> Which is a terrifying notion. That is, yeah, that's, I mean, imagine all the things that she's witnessed and powerless to stop. I don't know, I mean, if you think about Ghostbusters 2, it's not that powerless. Yeah, that's true. Right? I mean, yeah. you kick some fucking ass. Yeah, smashing cars and shit. Yeah. Busting out skylines. Think about it! <laughs> there must be higher love. You're like, okay, Peter Winwood, we'll just take it down there. Um... Taking, Ameri taking an American's tale as it stands, without worrying about the film's sequels and animated series that inevitably followed its success, of course. it's plain to see that the messages are still relevant today. Did the filmmakers think that their little animated problem or movie would solve all the problems? No. Probably not. But they also didn't envision the reality of a supposedly intelligent adult seeing a kid's movie to refresh them of the evils of racism and bigotry, or the virtues of inclusion, diversity, and plain old decency. Which is fucking well said. You know, it's like mm. that's that's something that needs to be done now. You know, yeah, like no, absolutely, it does because a lot of people have forgotten that they have. A lot of people have just completely fucking. They're just so self-absorbed anymore. It seems, and, and it's like it's it's not even self-absorbed. It's let's see how many ways we can fuck over the less fortunate, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, and you know, it like, legitimately seems like that. Like, when you see, like... And it's super disheartening. When you see these benches that have, like... Oh, spikes on them? Not even the spikes. The the middle seat, where there's, like, armrests yeah. in the middle. You're mm -hmm. like, come on, dude. Who the fuck is that helping? Yeah, 
That's you know, a, you're going out of your way now. Yeah. To do that to shit. To fucking fuck people over. It's fucked up. Fucking A. Now, rather than let a sleeping mouse lie, the film gave rise to a number of follow-up media which Don Bluth had no direct involvement. Oh. The theatrical sequel, Five Goes West, which I fucking love. Yeah, it was good. Like, to not be a Don Bluth, it felt very Don Bluthy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially with what, Jimmy Stewart is the dog? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um... It was directed by Phil Nibblink and Simon Wells and produced by Steven Spielberg and Robert Watts. Wow. It was released in 1991 and follows the adventures of Fievel and his family as they move from New York to the Wild West. Which, okay. Legit. Well, it's just like, let's go for, from one form of racism yeah. to the other form of racism. Yeah. Uh, a 13-episode TV series based on it called Fievel's American Tales aired on the CBS network between September and December 1992. And two direct-to-video films were also later, later produced by Universal Pictures, um, The Treasure of Manhattan Island in 1998, and The Mystery of the Night Monster in 1999. Wow, I completely don't remember those. <laughs> yeah. A video game based on the movie was released for PlayStation 2 only in Europe in 2007. Wow, talk about 20 years too late. <laughs> yeah. You're telling me I could have got a fucking SNES game out of this? Yeah. Come on. For fuck's sake. Feifel would also serve as the mascot for Spielberg's uh, Amblimation Animation Production Company, appearing in its production logo until the studio's dissolution in 1997. In March 2000, it was announced that he would also become the official children's spokesman for UNICEF. Oh. With the organization's director of communications, Craig Kornblau, remarking that Feifel Moskowitz is a popular and enduring character for children everywhere and his immigration experiences reflect the adventures and tribes of all cultures and their children. Good call. You know who else reflects adventures and tribes of all cultures and their children? I think you're going to tell me. That's Fatty. Yeah. Now, if you recall, we've already talked about this. It, for a different reason. Yeah. But it's coming up again. Art Spiegelman accused Spielberg of plagiarizing due to the fact that Jews are depicted as mice in the film, just as Spiegelman's earlier mouse, a metaphor he had adopted from Nazi propaganda. Yeah. Instead of pursuing copyright litigation, he opted to beat its release date by convincing his publishers to split mouse into two volumes and publish the first before he even finished the second. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> so it's like, no, 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 no. Listen. I want to try and beat him to the punch. Which, both can fucking exist. Yeah, I mean, it's like... It's, Two different sides of yeah, a coin here. Exactly. Um, DreamWorks may not have existed without an American Tale. Because it was jointly produced by Blue's Sol- or Don Blue's Sullivan Blue Studios and Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment. The, su- the success of the movie, along with that of The Land Before Time... Spurred Spielberg into opening an animation branch of the business called Amblimation. The company made just three movies before Spielberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and David Geffen formed DreamWorks. And most of the Amblimation employees were brought over as the main source feeding DreamWorks animation division. That makes sense. The first movie they tackled, which is one we will fucking cover, is The Prince of Egypt. Boom. Because let me tell you, Masterpiece. 
Um, David Kirshner is also responsible for another popular character. Oh. Before he was a writer, David Kirshner was a doll designer. Oh. The skill paid off a couple years after An American Tale when he designed another character that has its own place in pop culture, though a much different one than Fievel. No, do tell. Chucky. Oh, fucking Chucky. Fucking Chucky. Which is just like... (laughs) All right. Classic. Which also kind of ties Fievel... To uh, Tales from the Crypt and the Crypt Keeper. Because oh, Chucky yeah. and the Crypt Keeper have the same eyes. Yeah, it's true. Um, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert gave American Tale two thumbs down. They can go fuck off. With I Ebert, they're both dead, but they can with, still fuck off. They can. With Ebert declaring, this is the most downbeat movie since Return of Oz. Or Return to Oz. <laughs> which began, you may remember, with Dorothy being strapped down for electroshock therapy. Other critics tended to agree, but judging by the box office numbers, the public did not. The, this downbeat movie more, made more than $47 million domestically, beating Disney's Great Mouse Detective. Boom. Which is, un, it's underrated as it is. It is. As a Disney movie. Like, yes. nobody fucking talks about the Great Mouse, Great Mouse Detective. It's but true. I, like, burnt my VHS out. <laughs> like, I watched that all the fucking time. Uh, no one expected somewhere out there to do so well. Um, songwriting team Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann were given four weeks to write four songs for the movie with James Horner. They didn't think they had written a hit, but after Spielberg listened, he was convinced that somewhere out there could be a top 40 hit. He was right, because the Linda Ronstadt and James Ingram duet peaked at number two on the charts and won two Grammy Awards. Trust the Spielberg. It was also nominated for an Oscar, but lost to Take My Breath Away from Top Gun. Oh, man. And so we end another day of Don Bluth Bliss. Say that five times fast. Ooh. Join us tomorrow for one hell of a somber-ass episode. Ooh. Until next time, remember that there certainly are cats in America. Indeed. And remember, you will always be a Toys R Us kid.